you're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, The Two Genders. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. So I want to give a content warning off the top for this episode. We will be discussing mental health and suicidality will come up. We'll also be discussing the the experience of trans individuals, and we're probably going to get into some amount of discussion of transphobia. So be warned. As most listeners are probably aware, I am a final year medical student at the University of Manitoba's Max Rady College of Medicine. As part of a population and public health elective that I did in late 2023, I put together a short podcast episode on the subject of trans health and specifically how we as a society can best support transgender youth. That episode is actually going to show up in the Life, the Universe, and Everything Else feed shortly, sometime this month, as a bonus episode. But today, I think what we're hoping to do is give a bit of a broader view of trans health and issues that affect transgender individuals. Obviously, this won't be exhaustive, but that episode was was focused pretty narrowly on, on social transition, and we'll get into what that means a little bit later. But I think today we'd like to discuss quite a few things, including what gender and sex mean and how they affect people in different ways. Does that sound fair? I'm looking forward to it. Sure. I'm here. (laughs) So I think that our audience probably knows what we mean when we say transgender, but just so as everybody's on the same page, we might as well define our terms, at least broadly. Somebody want to take a stab at defining what transgender means? No, this is your show. Okay. So <laughs> I, can, I can give my definition if you'd like. <laughs> sure. Someone whose sense of self is different from the gender that they were assigned at birth. That's great. Yeah. So usually when we talk about gender and sex, we, we talk about gender identity, which is that sense of self that Lauren referred to, the gender that they know themselves to be. And somebody's trans when that doesn't line up with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And we, we say gender assigned at birth because gender and sex are different. Sex is a set of characteristics that we assign based on phenotype and genotype. And I'm sure... Ashlyn will probably get into this in more detail, perhaps, a little bit later. And gender is, is our sense of ourselves and our, our social role. So somebody's transgender or trans, if their gender identity doesn't match what they were assigned at birth, as, as Lauren said. There's another term that comes up, typically more common historically, 
transsexual. How do folks feel about that term? Not great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those terms that's like, that was a word that many people used and felt that described them back in the day and is not appropriate for people who are not those people to use mostly. Yeah. Yeah. The term transgender has largely replaced that older term for a variety of reasons, but you will still hear that term used both in medical contexts. Sometimes it's used to distinguish somebody who has like medically or surgically transitioned versus somebody who hasn't, but that is also falling out of favor. We tend to just use transgender regardless of whether any medical or surgical transition has taken place. And you'll also hear the term transsexual used by some older trans rights activists and occasionally by the younger ones looking over at Natalie Wynn, for example. (laughs) Many simple definitions of transgender in some members of this podcast and some astute listeners might have cottoned on to this. Many of these definitions tend to implicitly assume a gender binary, i.e. that there are exactly two well-defined genders and or sexes, and that transition involves crossing from one side of the line to the other. This leads to the obvious question, what about non-binary and other gender-diverse identities? Do, Do those individuals qualify as trans? And this is a question that I'm frankly not going to attempt to answer. It's hardly my gate to keep, but I would be interested in hearing from my co-hosts. I'm very much of the opinion that if you feel like you belong under the trans umbrella, that's enough and you do. Well, I agree with Ashlyn in principle. When it comes to my own self, I struggle a lot, big surprise, with feeling trans enough. Mm-hmm. But I also struggle enough, struggle with, tr- with feeling queer enough. I have imposter syndrome in every <laughs> oh. every part of my life. I'm the glad you're consistent, for- Lauren. <laughs> Sorry. The term, no worries. I don't use the term non-binary for myself. I use genderqueer, which is an older term that does fall under the non-binary umbrella. I, I've met many individuals who identify as genderqueer or genderfluid or agender, which means they don't have a, a gender, I guess. And yeah, we're, we're not here to gatekeep anybody, but just... Listeners should probably be aware that some non-binary individuals identify as trans and some don't. Some use gender hormone therapy, some have surgical transitions, and some don't. And that's, that's all valid. Not that anyone needs the cishet white guy on the podcast to validate their identity. <laughs> so, we have uh, the term transgender or trans, and then we have its opposite, cisgender or cis. Spelled C I S. So that's Dan, the opposite. You know, of we trans. shouldn't use slurs on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was uh, going to be my first point. <laughs> so the, the term cis was coined because it is useful when you have a term to have an antonym or an opposite, something that means not trans. Because referring to all of the not trans people is just clumsy. So cis is just a Latin prefix that is the opposite of trans. Trans means across, and cis means, I think, on the same side as. Yes. Would be how it would translate. So if somebody refers to cisgender, that just means somebody whose gender identity does conform to their gender assigned at birth. I think we're almost done with definitions, but one thing that I did want to point out is a couple of DSM diagnoses. 
The most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which is the DSM-5, it replaced the prior diagnosis of gender identity disorder with the new term or diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria refers to the feeling of discomfort or distress that many trans people experience as a result of the incongruity between their internal gender identity, that sense of self, and either their anatomic sex or the social gender expectations that they experience in daily life. So this language obviously serves to medicalize and thereby arguably pathologize being trans, which many gender diverse folks understandably take issue with. And as I mentioned earlier, it is important to note that while gender dysphoria is common, some trans people report that they never experienced what they would call dysphoria. They, they didn't feel that discomfort in their own body or sense of self. They just knew that they were a girl, even though everybody thought they were a boy. And that doesn't mean that they weren't trans just because they didn't experience gender dysphoria. Not only that, the experience of gender dysphoria is not wholly confined to the trans community. Non-binary individuals, gender diverse individuals of all stripes, and even cisgender individuals can experience gender dysphoria. And finally, it's important to remember that a person can be transgender regardless of whether any medical, surgical, or social transition has taken place. It's just about this, this identity, right? The DSM and the broader medical community generally views gender transition, which is the process by which a person's outward gender presentation is brought into concordance with their internal gender identity. They view gender transition as a means to minimize or eliminate gender dysphoria. Do folks have any opinions about this stuff, gender dysphoria as a concept, whether it's meaningful or useful? Like, gender dysphoria as a concept is obviously a real thing, but because of the way that trans people and people in general have been medicalized, sometimes it is overemphasized. And again, I would like to state that my core belief here is that if you feel like you are trans, that's probably enough. The, the emphasis on treating or curing dysphoria has led to a lot of people that are like, well, I feel like maybe I could be happier as a different gender, but you know, it's not really that upsetting to me, so I'm just going to cruise along with the status quo when they could be exploring that beautiful side of themselves. Mm -hmm. So that medicalization is... To some extent, a side effect of the, the medical system that we are stuck with right now. So one of the reasons I did a, a short uh, period of time at the trans health clinic with clinic with a K here in Winnipeg, I was just shadowing. So I was just observing, basically. But one of the things that was emphasized is that whether or not a patient was experiencing dysphoria... Gender dysphoria was required as a diagnosis because when you're billing for a clinical encounter, there needs to be a diagnosis a attached to that. Yeah, when you're, when you're prescribing medication, like gender-affirming hormones, you need like a diagnosis to go with that medication. When you are referring somebody for surgery, for surgical costs to be undertaken by the medical system and or insurance, 
there needs to be a reason. If this is just elective surgery, because somebody decides that they want to change their top or their bottom, if it's elective, then they're going to be paying out of pocket. But if there's a diagnosis associated with it, then you can justify that to the medical billing system. Essentially, things that are considered elective tend to not be covered, so we use a diagnosis like gender dysphoria to ensure that folks don't have to pay out of pocket as much. It's it's an unfortunate catch-all. It's like the label causes problems, but without the label, you can't get what you want or need for yourself. But that being said, we also have a history in our medical system that is really willy-nilly and sort of what's of the time of what we decide is elective or not elective. So I can't remember if they changed it or not, so I might just be speaking out of turn. But for a very long time, ear pinning surgery was covered. And so that's a surgery that's basically where if a kid's ears stick out more than the average, you can get their surgery, like the surgery to like tuck those ears back in against their head covered at no cost. Did their ears not work? Oh, no, their ears were totally fine. There was absolutely nothing wrong. It's that they might get made fun of because ears that stick out are not considered fashionable in our culture here. So we decided that, yeah, we'll pay for that, no problem. But other things are totally optional. Yeah. Which is absurd. So I just, I I use that as a good example of things that like, yes, and. (laughs) So Ashlyn, I guess this brings us to the question. Are sex and gender really binary? (laughs) An important thing to know is that the sex and gender binary is a lie and always has been a lie, or at best an oversimplification. So for sex, it is true that humans make two kinds of gametes, ova and sperm, unless there are some novel things that I'm unaware of, Jen, please fill me in. No, I'm not aware of any others. (laughs) These are our reproductive cells. But the range of sets of chromosomes and bodies that produce those gametes is much wider. In addition to folks with XY chromosomes who usually produce sperm and folks with XX chromosomes who typically produce ova, You've got folks with 1X, folks with 3Xs, quadruple X, quintuple X, XYY folks who almost never know there's anything different about themselves at all, plus a whole bunch of kinds of mosaicism that I did not understand well enough to put in here properly. On top of the chromosome stuff, you've got conditions like androgen insensitivity syndrome or 5-alpha reductase syndrome in the Ueva Dolces of the Dominican Republic who are raised as girls until their penis and testes develop around puberty. There's gonadal dysgenesis, where your gonads just never develop or induce puberty as normal, as well as many intersex folks who may have typical chromosomes and hormones, but who are born with genitalia that are not easily categorized into one of our two easy slots. Babies born with ambiguous genitalia, quote-unquote, are born shockingly often, considering how little we hear about them. Even with the most restrictive definition, quote, if the term intersex is to retain any meaning, the term should be restricted to those conditions in which chromosomal sex is inconsistent with phenotypic sex, or in which the phenotype is not classifiable as either male or female. As with that definition, there is one baby for every 5,500 babies born who has sex chromosomes that do not match their appearance, or the appearance is so ambiguous that it's not clear whether the baby is male or female. 
And that stat, of course, doesn't count the folks who never know that they have any kind of intersex characteristics. Like the story that I ran across today of a 70-year-old man who had fathered four children and then discovered he had a uterus during an unrelated surgery, which wow. I think is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. That's neat. Surprise womb. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise womb. That's great. It really, I, I just can't help but think like, wow, that uterus really wandered around, I bet. Or... <laughs> yeah, if anyone was, could have had hysteria, this guy. <laughs> yeah, no yeah. kidding. That uterus so, didn't so much as wander as like get on the bus and take a trip. And... <laughs> no kidding. Wow, that's, yeah, surprise womb. Love it. So two sexes. Not really. Gender, of course, is a largely unrelated social construct that we humans have built up over the course of millennia. People who assert that there always have been and always will be two sexes can be somewhat understood. But when people who have existed in the world for any length of time try and tell us that there are two genders, honestly, how silly, how absurd. <laughs> people who don't identify with or aren't easily categorized into one of our two standard boxes fall outside the binary. And there are so many versions of people who don't identify with or aren't easily categorized into one of our two standard boxes. These days, pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast recognizes and understands there are lots of different genders, people who have no gender, people who have many genders, and people who switch between genders fluidly. I decided to learn a little bit about a few different minority genders from around the world. I was helped by a really cool tool that I found on pbs.org, a interactive Google map of gender diverse cultures around the world. I thought that was pretty cool to find. And I, I also, okay, I'm going to read this description of the person who helped with this map because I just think it's really cool that this is a description that appears on pbs.org. The 2023 update for this text and the map was made in consultation with Badly Licked Bear, who describes themselves as an educator, writer, artist, and mutual aid worker. They are a storyteller who teaches storytelling by storytelling, and they tell circle-shaped stories. Their work is rooted in mm -hmm. shifting identity, Looney Tunes, BDSM, deep observation, and their lived experience as an indigiqueer trans femme. Oh, that's who helped put together this cool map. I highly recommend it. It will be in the show notes. Here's a few cool things I learned. There is a group of folks called Feminiello in Italy, roughly translating as little man-woman, refers to a third gender of persons who are typically assigned male at birth, who dress as women and assume female gender roles in Neapolitan society. Until recent centuries, their status in society was fairly privileged, and they were involved in practicing rituals based on Greek mythology and involved in wedding ceremonies. A lot of sort of third gender identities are involved in wedding ceremonies and blessing marriages and births and things like that, which is pretty cool. Mm. So that's from what is now Italy. Has anyone ever heard of the Bernesha? I don't believe so. No. So no. these are also called the Balkan Sworn Virgins. These are women who would take a vow of chastity, give up their sort of reproductive roles and social identities to dress as and acquire the social freedoms of men. So they could wear the clothes, be head of the household, move, take work that was only for men, but they had to remain celibate and, and not marry. So they gave up things in order to acquire the powers of men in that society. Currently, hmm. there are only about like a dozen 
of these folks who are are still doing those roles in in the Balkans. But I thought that was kind of cool to learn about. And was this something that they would voluntarily do or would it be something that you would be chosen for? Like, how does that work? It seems like the the big top reasons were they wanted to because they wanted to do the work or provide for their family, etc. To avoid being forced into a marriage they didn't want to do or because your family really wants you to do it. Okay. And that is a, a practice which is very much dying out. One of the sort of most commonly known third genders around the world are the the Hijra. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this is a South Asian cultural practice. These are people who are typically assigned male at birth, who adopt feminine gender identity, women's clothing, and gender roles. And since colonization especially, they tend to live in their own communities, which are led by these gurus. And so you, when you sort of come out as as a hijra, you find a guru and join one of these communities and they teach you how to be a part of the community. And these folks are involved in blessing weddings and they will go out and they're hoping to bring prosperity to Hindu couples. And then the Hindu couples are supposed to pay them for their services. Often because of the the way that they have been oppressed in modern society, they're sort of like half feared, half respected. They might curse you if you don't pay them. But because of the way that they are forced to live in poverty because they have to kind of stick to their own communities, sometimes they'll just show up at people's weddings and bless them and expect payment uh, to <laughs> how they make their living. And, yeah. and that fear that people have about like, oh, if I don't pay them, maybe they'll curse me is sort of the stick to go with the carrot of the blessing. <laughs> um, they've got that role in society. So I got that going for me, which is nice. But it's also, while they are respected, there's also the fear, and it's colonialism has messed up the balance. <laughs> right, right. The respect, the, yeah, yeah. Strange that that would happen. Yeah. Of course, yeah. There, that's a very that's like common what half, theme. Yeah, that's half my segment is colonialism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So here in Western society and in Canada, non-binary identities are increasingly recognized, at least by people under 40. In some places, we can have our gender markers change to a non-binary option. The risks with that are you got to balance it. The thing that I always think about is if I ever changed my gender marker, still got to go through a border eventually, probably. And that just seems like an extra layer of I don't want to talk to you that I'm taking out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why um, I haven't changed mine either. And despite the fact that we we are now allowed here to have the the X non-binary gender marker, it's either male, female, or X in Canada, the two most common medical record systems that are used here in Manitoba, Acuro and the big hospital one whose name I always forget, neither of them will actually recognize that gender marker. <laughs> Okay, very funny, because literally the next line in my thing is, sometimes I can choose non-binary pronouns or greetings on forms, like at the doctor's office, but mostly not. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of like workarounds for it, but it's extremely absurd that it, it yeah. is still a problem. Manitoba Medical, like I actually picked up a telephone and called somebody to complain about the fact that I couldn't put even non-binary on there. Yeah. And th- through my bank, I am referred to as M, 
Lauren Bailey because they still require honorifics, but they don't have like an MX or something. So I am now officially a French man in the eyes of Scotiabank. <laughs> and have been since 2016. The, the service person who helped me was, she understood, but mm-hmm. the system hasn't changed. And I keep checking. Monsieur Bailey. I think I think Lauren, you you need to get an online like Reverend certificate and just go by Reverend. I have one. Well, then there you well, go. Yeah, problem like, just solved. Go by reverend. <laughs> but I don't want to. I don't want there to be an honorific. No, fair enough. That's a whole other fight. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to be less honored, less revered. Yeah, tell them your story about capital eyes. No thanks. This is not a Lauren's <laughs> trauma podcast. Well, it's only. This episode's only about one part of Lauren's trauma. Right. Oh yeah, I was also going to say, some non-binary people choose to and can access gender-affirming care here. Many cannot because of weird, outdated reasons like Jem mentioned about needing a medical reason to do things. It's kind of a mess in general. And one of the only clinics in Manitoba that will deal with it, we've had friends tell us that they really only will help you if you are choosing to medically transition, which was shocking when I heard what clinic it was. But hmm. when you say medically transition, do you mean like surgically or with hormones or? All of that falls under medical transition. OK, is, is typically I'm... like under the medical system, we make a distinction. And this this is inside mm-hmm. baseball that you would have yeah. no reason to, to know. But usually we make a, disin- a distinction between medical treatment, which is typically with a medication, like a pharmacologic treatment, versus surgical treatment. So that's why mm-hmm. that's disappointing. But any I'm kind disappointed. of care, including social transition care, like getting your name changed is like an 18-month wait right now. Yep. Absurd. Yeah. Sorry, Lauren, was there a larger point you were working towards there? It was mostly because this individual is non-binary and wasn't interested in any sort of medical or surgical transition and then they said there's nothing we can do to help you yeah that's all Mm. Mm -hmm. i wanted to address just a couple of super common misconceptions that the wider world has about non-binary people and other people that fall outside the two boxes non-binary people aren't all androgynous i saw a shirt i still haven't made it for myself femmes can be thems too love it Not all non-binary people need to dress in kilts and vests or whatever. Like, I get so many ads for androgynous clothing, and it's just... Or the color gray. Somewhat tailored men's clothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, like the, two, the two kinds of shirt are women's and unisex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I still have a great pair of tits, and I'm fine with those. <laughs> so, let me fit my genderqueer body. Into something. Mm-hmm. We don't all have monolithic pronouns. There's one million pronouns. Just do whatever the person you're talking to tells you to. That's great. It's not that hard. Stop telling us it's hard. That would be great. <laughs> and just like small things that you can do to make the world more welcoming to people that are outside of the binary Stop addressing large groups as ladies and gentlemen is just like the floor, the floor that you can step over. And I feel like typically progressive people who would not address a large group of people as ladies and gentlemen, when they find themselves in the position of, for example, 
I'm trying to think like a waitress or someone coming up to a small group of people. It seems to completely leave their head and they make an immediate assessment of the genders in front of them and say things like, how's it going today, ladies? And it's just so easy to avoid that kind of stuff and just take away some of those cringe moments from from day-to-day life. And think about it ahead of time. I was pleasantly surprised. Ashlyn and I went to go see Sandy and Nora at the West End Cultural Center. And in intermission, I got up and I said, oh, time to use the bathroom and be disappointed about what's available. But they have two bathrooms. One says, all genders with urinals, and the other one says, all genders with stalls. And Mm -hmm. I was very happy. And I peed twice. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's great. The rock climbing place where the kids have done lessons is also like that with their bathrooms and and they're like they're mostly like please just wash your hands and yes. <laughs> I need to know more about this place when we're off air. Absolutely. It's it's good. <laughs> One thing I noticed with the kids is in schools and daycares there's been a very noticeable shift to friends, classmates, my kids mm-hmm. go to French immersion. So mes amis, les amis. Most of those teachers are under 40 now. Well, I mean, even the ones who, who aren't, but it's just, actually, I noticed it first at Huxley's second daycare, where a, like a, a wide range of, of teachers and that, but it's my friends, all friends, friends, it's time for this, or group mates or whatever it was, but it was very just general descriptors of the group of children. So that was that was interesting. Like, it's not often that I hear boys and girls mm-hmm. That's great. at all, which is something that when Kira was younger, being three years older than Huxley, I remember hearing a little bit more and just from my own childhood. So that's mm-hmm. that's interesting. I'm wondering, actually, how much of that, like, did you notice at first at a French immersion daycare? Because I think my childhood was very different English versus French-wise. French was, despite having all of the gendered pronouns, was much more about, like, mes amis and that w- mm-hmm. instead of the group gendered greetings. The, the daycare where we first noticed it was English. Yeah. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah, we noticed it. We noticed it at the English daycare first, but yeah, absolutely. Mes amis has just been a staple of, or les amis, mes amis, has been a staple of, of the French approach to addressing a group of children for in my own experience as well so i think that lends well but just hearing it in english friends or there's other ones that i've heard but very like inclusive yeah. romans countrymen <laughs> <laughs> country people Ooh. <laughs> i'll be sure to tell william shakespeare he needs to update his language <laughs> yeah right <laughs> quadrupeds lend me your ears I'm kind of irritated that I have like the perfect transition to throw to Laura, but Laura's not next. Before we throw to anybody, I would just like to mention the one thing that I see when you get into discussions with TERFs. That's something that we didn't include, or I didn't include in the definitions off the top. A TERF is another supposed slur to go along with cis that gets tossed around. And the term is falling out of favor for for a very good reason, I think, which is not that it's a slur, but that it's inaccurate. TERF stands for Trans-Exclusive Radical Feminist, um, and a lot of people who are described as TERFs because they exclude trans people from their feminism. 
don't like it, and so say turf is a slur. But a, a lot of these folks are so cozy with the far right that they cannot, in any reasonable degree, be described as feminists. <laughs> they, they tend to self-describe as gender-critical feminists these days, I think. Regardless, mm-hmm. they love wearing shirts that say, like, was it J.K. Rowling or Posey Parker who came up with the, that definition of woman? adult human female i love wearing their definition shirts and i'll often see them like come into the mentions of somebody and then that person will will respond by asking that because they're arguing about definitions the definition of woman and i often see the classic response please define chair in such a way that it includes all things that are a chair and no things that are not a chair and this is just a, a means of illustrating that even very basic things that we understand cannot actually be clearly defined in ways that there are no exceptions. Yes. Because reality is complex. And Define invariably sandwich, they will... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've done several episodes on this. Still the best episodes we've ever done. <laughs> Often they will give a definition like, Something that you sit on, and they'll say, okay, great, so a horse is a chair. Cool. Honey, do you like my new shoes? You are a chair, darling. I can dream, Harold! They'll say, something that you sit on that's made by people. They'll say, okay, cool, a bed, a table, it's all a chair. (laughs) And the, the, the definition will become more and more and more complex, and try to include so many more narrow things that it starts excluding things that are chairs. Right. Venn diagram um, starts yeah. to collapse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, it's very funny to witness and eventually they'll stop responding. They've gone away. And that's, yeah. that's it's Diogenes' problem. Plato said that man is a featherless biped. So Diogenes ran in and held up a plucked chicken and said, behold a man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I mentioned on the, when I was talking about Rowling, but the variation on turf as fart always entertains me. Feminism appropriating yeah. ridiculous transphobe. <laughs> I like that one. I'm well, actually curious, Jim. You said there was a good reason why turf is falling out of favor. I haven't seen that. Oh, the reason that I've seen is just they're not feminists. And the definition oh. includes mm-hmm. feminist in the title. But a lot of a lot of the transphobes that are described as turfs, some of them would describe themselves as like second wave feminists or whatever, but a lot right, of the people right. who get described as TERFs are, are not, who are part of the same group are not, wouldn't even self-describe as feminists. So right, and now I see that that's what you were saying before, but I didn't connect it to that statement. I see. Yeah. 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 So we're, we're taking away their ability to appropriate the word feminist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just like yeah. Nazis have socialist in their, in their name. Yeah. It, right. <laughs> very much. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I I wanted to add that being non-binary, feeling like you're not inside these two boxes that society has dictated for you, it's not a trend, it's not something that is just in the media right now, and I know we're going to touch on that a lot later, but people need to think more about the the left-handed hockey stick graph and how I'm always amazed at how many... (laughs) stories you hear on the wider internet but also from friends of when they describe their gender to their parents as like you know what i've just never quite felt like blank or this just fits for me differently and here's why and they say oh 
I think a lot of people have those feelings and yada yada and and other other revelations that as one of my best friends told me when I was talking about things that were making my brain think those aren't cis feelings. <laughs> so I'd just like to return to my my essential point of if you feel like maybe you're not 100% whatever gender that you were assigned, it's totally cool to just think about it some more. And I came across a really beautiful site while I was doing my research that is going to be my something nice, and I'm going to talk about it later. Hmm. Cool. Just to belabor Ashlyn's point, even if you feel 100% secure in your gender and sexual expression or whatever, it doesn't hurt to question it anyway. Yeah, Sit totally. there and figure yourself out. Yeah, if I had sat down and wrote that out, I would have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't trying to, to step no, on you. You're, I just... you're right. Yeah, I didn't really truly understand my gender until I saw John Rhys Davies in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what? Oh, yes, the dwarves that go swimming with little hairy women. Your gender is Gimli? <laughs> Your gender is dwarf? Like, what? I don't understand at all. That's why you're always trying to get me to trim my beard. Oh, my God. Laura, I kind of got it. Oh, why? I don't... Like, truly, you're going to have to explain this in more in depth of what you mean, because I am not following. Maybe this is a topic for therapy. <laughs> well, you don't that, have to do it on, on that line. note. Why don't we transition to oh, my segment? God, Jim, come on. There's an extensive body of research demonstrating that transgender individuals, especially trans youth, are at an increased risk of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. A 2016 study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health by Veal et al. reported that Canadian transgender youth were nearly 10 times as likely to experience depression compared to the Canadian population as a whole. A 2019 study by Toma et al. Found, found that transgender youth experienced suicidal ideation at more than twice the rate of their cisgender peers. These youth were also more likely to attempt suicide and engage in non-suicidal self-harming behavior. Opponents of trans rights have used these statistics to discourage societal acceptance of trans people, suggesting that being transgender is inextricably linked to poor mental health. So let me be crystal clear, this is false, and the evidence that it is false is overwhelming. I'll be discussing some of it in a minute. But the fact that this is false doesn't stop TERFs and so-called gender criticals, or farts, as Ashlyn likes referring to them as, from using these dismaying statistics as a bludgeon against trans rights. Critics of the so-called trans agenda will also point to the fact that gender identity disorder, and now gender dysphoria, are is a DSM diagnosis. They point to this as proof that transgender individuals are mentally ill by definition. And by doing so, they, they show both their transphobia and their bias against neurodivergent individuals. In any event, transgender youth are at significantly increased risk of poor mental health outcomes compared to their cisgender peers. So this segment is based in part on some research that I did on that additional podcast episode that I mentioned earlier that we'll be releasing as a bonus episode. And that bonus episode will have some additional content in it too, so feel free to listen, even if you're listening to this segment as well. But happily, 
There is a robust and growing body of evidence suggesting that early access to medical transition, including gender-affirming hormone therapy, has a significant and consistent positive impact on mental health and psychological functioning among transgender youth, putting their measures of mental health on par with their cisgender peers. So this evidence shows that when we give trans kids access to gender-affirming medical care, there isn't this disparity in mental health. So studies have shown and continue to show significant reductions in depression and suicidality among trans youth who have access to these transition resources. So transition here is most often viewed through either a medical or surgical lens, but a broader view of transition includes social transition, which involves the adoption of a name, hairstyle, clothing, and pronouns associated with an individual's affirmed rather than their birth gender. And medical transition may not be appropriate in every case for every individual. Some trans youth aren't ready for or aren't interested in a medical transition, as we discussed earlier, especially with some non-binary individuals. And some parents might understandably worry about the irreversible nature of some of the changes that are brought about by gender-affirming hormone therapy or surgical care if their children later decide to detransition. However, this is a point that we have to bring up every single time it is important to keep in mind that undergoing a natural puberty also entails irreversible changes that trans children may later regret. Yep. So Number one complaint that I hear from friends of mine who transitioned later in life is that I wish that I had done this earlier. Yeah. There are changes to body shape, to bone length, to... Is secondary sexual characteristics, hair growth patterns, voice changes are typically quite prominent in those who undergo a masculinizing puberty. And these are all also irreversible changes, just like you would get if you had gender-affirming hormone therapy. And for that reason, there is a push to use so-called puberty blockers, which essentially delay the onset of puberty to allow a child more time to explore their gender identity without having to undergo these irreversible changes. We have some evidence suggesting that there are there don't appear to be any adverse outcomes. In some cases, there might be some reduction in total height that is achieved in some individuals, but that is not fully attested. But we don't have any we don't really have any strong reason not to do puberty blockers, for what it's worth. When we talk about gender-affirming hormone therapy, so not just these puberty blockers, but sort of what we might call cross-gender hormones, where you're, you're sort of adding in new hormones rather than just reducing the effect of existing hormones on the body, there are a small number of medical conditions that are contraindications. And so, so you can't... Not everybody can take gender-affirming hormones. It tends to be more common in older individuals that they'll have these, like people who transition much later in life, that they would have these contraindications, but some kids can have them. And there do also remain significant barriers to access medical transition for trans youth, including financial barriers and even legal barriers in some jurisdictions, including many American states, something that I believe Lauren may touch on in their segment later. We shall see. 
a supported social transition in which the with the support of family, teachers, and peers, a trans child adopts the pronouns of their affirmed gender alongside changes in dress and hairstyle and often name. That is not only a typical precursor to medical transition, it can also serve as a completely reversible way for a child to try on a new gender identity and allow caregivers and peers a chance to sort of acclimate to the change. So with all these with all these sort of challenges and ideas in mind, the core question that I wanted to address with this segment when I looked into the research around social transition was whether there was evidence that, like medical transition, social transition could also improve mental health. I found two studies, two recent studies, that address this question more or less directly. The first was by Olson et al. It was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2016. The second study was by Durwood et al., and it was published the following year, 2017, in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So I'm going to describe these studies sort of in broad strokes. Feel free to hit me up with any questions about the way they worked, though. The Olson study asked the parents of 73 socially transitioned trans kids aged 12 and under about the mental health of their kids. So they were talking to the parents and they said, hey, how are your kids doing in terms of their mental health? The parents were tasked with rating their children's levels of depression and anxiety using standard metrics that you use in psychiatric assessments. The authors also looked at rates of anxiety and depression among those kids' cisgender siblings and among age and gender identity-matched cisgender controls. What they found was surprising. They found no difference in levels of depression between the socially transitioned trans kids and their siblings, and no difference in levels of depression among the trans kids as compared to their age and gender identity matched cis controls. There did appear to maybe be a mild increase in anxiety among the trans participants compared to the cis kids, but it did not actually reach the point of either statistical or clinical significance. So we can't really conclude that there was a difference after all. The authors concluded that, quote, these results provide clear evidence that transgender children have levels of anxiety and depression no different from their non-transgender siblings and peers. That's honestly shocking to me that it wouldn't even be clinically significant extra levels of anxiety because being trans in this society is terrifying. Yeah, and I, I agree. The important thing to to note here is that the the 73 trans kids that were studied here were well-supported, socially transitioned kids. So they had support of their families, and they had support of their school system. And that's not something that every trans kid, far from it, that every trans kid had, yeah, has access to. pretty different, but... How? Still, just a little bit of, I don't know, that's, I mean, it's amazing. And like what we have internally felt and kind of known, but that means nothing to science. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just to have not even significant, if you are, if you were properly supported at home and at school, just no difference, even though our society fucking sucks. That's amazing. Yeah. How, so, sorry, how old were these kids too? They were under 12. Okay. I think so they had, that they goes had to not as aware of the wider too. world for sure. Just, yeah, that's something that I, I can totally understand just having kids under 12. 
So we'll get into the next study then. Though it was similar to the Olson study in most respects, the Durwood study looked at a slightly older group of trans youth, up to age 14, who had undergone a supported social transition. Unlike the earlier Olson study, it also didn't solely rely on measures reported by parents, which is one criticism of that study. It also asked the kids themselves to complete these standardized anxiety and depression measures along with their parents. Oh yeah, that seems really important. I didn't. So it asked. So it asked both of them. Yeah. <laughs> so so it asked these kids to fill out standardized anxiety and depression measurements, and also asked the participants to report on their self-worth as well, using a standardized questionnaire. The results were actually consistent with those reported by Olson et al. So socially transitioned transgender youth displayed typical rates of depression, and the authors found no difference in measures of depression or self-worth between the trans kids and the cis kids. Like the Olson study, there was a marginal increase in anxiety, but again, it it was not statistically significant, so you can't conclude that it is really there, necessarily. And it, I don't remember what the p-value was, but it was like 0.3 something or something. It was, not, it was not great. And it was also not clinically significant either. So it was a few, a few points above, but not the point where the average trans kid was like clinically anxious. So together, these papers demonstrate that trans youth who are supported by their parents, schools, and social group are not at increased risk of depression compared to their cisgender peers, which suggests that poor mental health among trans youth is not actually caused by their gender identity, but uh, surprise, surprise, it is instead the result of harassment, discrimination, and a general lack of support that they often receive. So if listeners are interested in more details on what a supported social transition actually looks like, I go into that at length in the bonus episode that we'll publish later this month. I have specific recommendations for both teachers and parents on how to approach social transition at home and at school. And these recommendations come from researchers, parents, and most importantly, trans people themselves. So the first half of that bonus episode will kind of recap a lot of what I've discussed in my segment so far. And then the second half goes into how we do a social transition for, for folks who would find that information useful. As I mentioned, this second study looked at a slightly older group of children than the first, some of whom had also just started taking puberty blockers, and a small number of whom had begun medical transition with the aid of gender-affirming hormones. So this provided the authors an opportunity to compare the mental health of these three subgroups when they did their analysis. Perhaps surprisingly, they identified no differences in depression, anxiety, or self-worth between these subgroups either. While it wasn't the aim of the study to find differences like these, and we can't draw conclusions from these data, it is possible that a supported social transition is enough to kind of erase the, the mental health gap. And a supported social transition may have a greater positive impact on mental health than medical transition does, at least in the early stages, which is interesting. Makes sense. Like I said, I'll go into more detail in the bonus episode about how you go about doing these social transitions at home and at school. But it's really, it's not hard to get right. It's pretty straightforward. It's also surprisingly easy to get wrong primarily because lots of people, not everybody, but lots of people are really rule-oriented and obsessed with following, like, the letter of the law. 
I actually encountered this recently during my child and adolescent psychiatry rotation, where there is a there's policies in place for how patients are referred to, and you have lists of patients with their room numbers on like big boards that are displayed in common areas on the ward. And there was a consistent issue where trans patients who were a child and adolescent psychiatry, so these were youth, where trans patients on the ward always had their legal name on the register at the front. Their preferred name was also listed, usually in parentheses, after it, but it's, it was very frustrating to see over and over again. And it was a problem that one of the residents that I was working with had brought up actually on my first day. She was talking about this. The, fir- the first time she walked into the room, she said, okay, can we stop dead naming these kids? Can we, can we just like get that off the board? And she had a meeting with some of the nurses about it. For, for those who are not aware, dead name is the name assigned to a child prior to transition in people who have a new name for themselves. So not all trans people will take a different name when they transition, but most do. And it's generally considered fairly rude and in some cases traumatic to refer to people by their dead name. At the very least, it's disrespectful. <laughs> In the same way that if somebody has repeatedly said, hey, I go by my second name, if you repeatedly just call them by their first name instead, that's disrespectful at the very least, right? Well, again, a good example of how we do this all the time when cis women get married and change their names or people get divorced and change their names back or something like that. Like, if you've changed your name and... I am this now, you expect to be called that. And in our society, we are pretty good at learning those kinds of things. And it's pretty rude if like, hey, I'm divorced now, I'm changing my name back to this. And people are like, oh, no, I'm just going to call you this other name forever. It's like, well, actually. Yeah, until until you've changed your driver's license, I'm going to refuse to call you by your maiden name. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we... Nobody would do that. (laughs) Nobody would do that. Right. But when it comes to first names, that's a big... A big problem, but yet we all have that uncle who's like, that's his real name? I never knew that because everybody called him such and such. And we were all fine with that. I went by Stuart for a year in third grade because I moved to a different school and I got tired of being beaten up for being a kid named Jim. And then I went back to my old school and I changed it back. Did you ever really feel like a Stuart? Mm, I don't remember. (laughs) Fair. I think I might have. I like Jim better. Yeah, I'm okay with it now. Because you are... Oh, God. Don't say it. An adult? Truly outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, you're such a troll. Anyway, last week I showed up on the ward on Monday and we had another, like a different kid and again their dead name was up on the board and like I I was surprised because there had been like this big thing with one of the residents and so I went to the nurses and I said hey where are the erasers where's the chalk I need to change this name and they're like why and I said well that's that's not their name name. 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 we're gonna put up their name 
And for identification purposes, for medical legal reasons, you have to have some identifier there that's legal. So we'll put up their legal initials so that we can disambiguate if we need to, but we're going to put up their name and we're going to remove their dead name. And I was told, well, we don't have clarity on what the policy is, so we just want to keep it the way it is. And I told them, <laughs> I think the words I said were, I don't care what the policy is. If yes, this is the policy, the policy so is wrong. Much. Like, it's very well established. This is like, don't think I started raising my voice, but I was very forceful in a way that I haven't been in most cases. Because this was a psych ward. We're specifically concerned about mental health here. We're concerned about suicide risk. And we know it is very well established that we have things that we can do to decrease that risk. And we have things that we can do to increase that risk. And what we're doing here is increasing that risk. We're doing harm. So let's stop it. And they changed it. I don't care what they say about me. It shouldn't take that, but no, uh, it should. I hope changing. You shouldn't have to point out that somebody is using the Nuremberg defense before they listen to you. Right. So I've talked at length now about the importance of social transition, but are there downsides? Could it be that all of these kids socially transitioning at school are making other kids turn trans, Laura? No. Oh, okay. On to you, Lauren. <laughs> Perfect. Some great. No further words required. <laughs> no. I agree. Laura's segment is just the word no. <laughs> oh, it's it's really hard to answer anything other than that when you set up like that. Good segment, Laura. <laughs> Thanks. I worked for 20 minutes on it. Oh man. I am gonna stick with the answer no, but let's talk a little bit more about why the answer is no. Kids these days aren't all just falling under each other's spells and joining in with those trans things as a way of, I don't know, being different or difficult or whatever it is, as some groups out there might have, try to have people believe. The social contagion theory is something that has been floating around for the, for some time. I, I'm not an expert in history on this, but it started to gain more steam. In the last decade or so, little less than a decade. And it was, it really took off in and around 2018 when there was a, a paper published looking at a supposed rise in or, or sudden rise in rates of kids presenting as trans and looking for trans affirming health care. And particularly among kids for whom they had not shown much in the way of gender dysphoria, as we are talking about before, signs of transness younger in age. And so this is, from this study, is where the term rapid onset gender dysphoria comes about, which I will try to remember to talk about a little bit more in a minute. So now we need to talk about this study because it was, it was and still is really influential in the idea of the social contagion. So this study was written by a physician and researcher named Lisa Littman, and it's important to know it was a relatively small study, and also this researcher had 
not a lot of experience in trans youth health care prior to writing this paper. I'm shocked, Laura. Just shocked. <laughs> so the researcher collected stories and perceptions of this rapid onset gender dysphoria for several hundred youth, but the researcher did speak only to parents, not to the youth themselves at all. And there are a lot of questions and concern and critiques about the methods that speaking only to parents, especially when the youth in question were adolescents. So we're not talking about preschoolers or young early year school children who may have difficulty expressing themselves or answering more complicated questions. We're talking about 12, 13 year olds or older in some cases. So, so children who are largely capable of talking about many different things. Also, there was a big concern that the recruitment was done in a potentially very biased way, seeking out recruitment in anti-trans or trans-critical spaces online. And we all know what a cesspool the internet is, so just find the worst of it and go get your, go get your people there. So all of this came down to, one, the coining of the term, the, like the rapid onset gender dysphoria, which means people were, these kids were just fine until they met up with these other kids online and then suddenly they want to be trans. And it also posited, the, well, loosely posited the theories that increased access to transgender spaces and ideologies online and in social media were encouraging these kids to adopt a trans identity either as a way of fitting in socially and gaining social power, I guess, and or a way of avoiding one's problems in life, or both. So, so from there, anybody who was already transcritical just took the study and ran with it. Now, it is important to note that the author herself has said that she feels that the research was taken out of context and was shouldn't be used the way that it is, and also that she still thinks that we need to be very careful with people who show rapid onset gender dysphoria. So there's, there's a mixed bag in that. The paper itself has been heavily edited and the type of paper it was is, has been changed as well. So that speaks to how much it can be counted as evidence. Nevertheless, this paper is a founding document in many, in much of the rhetoric and many of the bills that are trying to be passed, the anti-trans bills that are out there as well, and are, and is in fact cited verbatim sometimes in the presentation of these bills in, in different legislatures around the U.S. So with this new diagnosis, now, <laughs> Gem and I will talk about this, but the <laughs> The diagnostics in mental health, they love them a new diagnosis, so they'll, they'll join they in on that. But also, they're not very good at always distinguishing, is this really a thing or not? But once it's out there, it's really, really hard to, it's really, really hard to retract. But we need to look at it more so. So there are several assumptions in this whole situation, the social contagion theory that we, we really need to examine. The first is that the, the assumption and often the assertion by anti-trans groups that there are exponential and unexplained rises in the number of kids 
presenting as trans and looking for gender-affirming care. And this is out of line. And specifically, the concern is with girls, or, or more accurately, people assigned female at birth seeking this, and how these numbers are so much higher than they once were. And that's a problem, and that shows that it's spreading in online circles and such. This is, this is the assumption we're following so far. So now we, we need to look at, at this. There are several reasons why it might seem as, as though there are a lot more people presenting, a, a lot more assigned female birth people who are identifying as trans now than they used to be. First of all, when we look at the actual numbers of adolescents that identify themselves as trans, the, the ratio of assigned male at birth to assigned female at birth trans individuals is a one rate, or the most recent statistics was 1.2 to 1 in favor of assigned male at birth. So it's still more people assigned male at birth, a small margin more, but mm. still more are identifying as, as trans compared to assigned female at birth. Now, this is down a little bit over a few years. This, it went from 1.5 to 1 to 1.2. And this was all outlined in a, a large study published by the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2022, which we'll link to in the show notes. But it's also important to point out that change isn't that there are, in fact, more people who are assigned female at birth identifying as trans. It's that fewer people assigned male at birth are identifying as trans. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that was the change, the, the oh. equalizing. Huh. Mm-hmm. Which is... That's really interesting. Which is really interesting. So, so in people who are... And, and this data is taken from a large nationwide survey in the U.S. where teenagers themselves in high school answer the question. So this is directly from these people. So we're not having parental or teacher interpretation of, of somebody's gender identity. It's from them, from themselves there. So they, these are really the best people to know who they are to themselves. So from the kids themselves, we're not seeing this change. Where we do see some changes is that there is a higher number of people who are assigned female at birth presenting to gender identity clinics for medical care. Now, organizations like WPATH, which is the World Something on Transgender Health. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Thank you. Again, brain is off. This organization publishes all sorts of guidelines and guidance documents and, and does a lot of research on these, on these notes here. And so they do, they have mentioned that there are higher rates of people assigned female at birth presenting for medical care. However, they are very careful to point out and refute the automatic, aha, see, we told you there's more, there's an uptick, by saying this largely demonstrates changes in medical access and in social norms and acceptability and referral patterns. It, it, this does not imply that there is a sudden increase in people who are assigned female at birth suddenly identifying as trans. So that's, it's a... For some people, that could seem like a subtle or even non-useful distinction, but it actually is a very useful distinction to think about, that it's not just the one, it's the other aspect of these things that is far more, far more likely. They also point out very astutely that 
people presenting for care at gender clinics do not encompass all people who consider themselves trans, as we were talking about earlier, because especially in countries like the U.S., where medical care is dictated by your employment and income, there are going to be a lot of people who would love to access gender care and simply cannot afford it or, ex- or are excluded for many, many reasons. And so you are not going to get an overlap. The, the sample at the clinic is not necessarily just a smaller sample of the greater population mm-hmm. either. So that's something that we, we need to look at. Another issue that we need to look at with the social contagion is even deeper, and it goes back to good old sexism and assumptions about gender and that. So a strong argument that is important to keep in mind with this is that we, as a society, tend to worry more about what is happening to the, in quotation marks, girls and what's happening to them, and also at the same time assume that they can't make their own decisions, that people who are assigned female at birth can't make decisions of what is best for them and what they know about their bodies. Mm. And thus, we are very, very worried about the girls being affected by this social contagion. Also, because we all know that girls and social media, they can't be controlled. (laughs) Barf. So long story short with that, we have a very strong social bias towards worrying about these things. So anytime we, we think there might be an uptick in something to do with girls changing or making decisions for themselves and changing things, we get very concerned. And we, we stop trusting that these individuals might know themselves better than we do. And then lastly, let's go back to that sexism. But we have a An assumption when it comes to transgender people, we have a societal assumption that that means assigned male at birth and trans feminine for a lot of reasons, because there is a lot of challenge in our society and a lot of expectations of what a man should be and what it shouldn't be. And for a long time, that was the most and even only visible type of transgender person that existed or even became accepted or something. For some accounts, people have said they, as trans men or trans masculine people, they didn't even know that trans men were a thing because there were no, there were no examples of it in their lives. Whereas we have examples, like more prominent examples of trans women and trans feminine people dating back decades in, at least in the culture that we're looking at. And when we look in Hollywood and things like that, we have some of those. But for some people, thinking about the idea of being a trans man, they just didn't even know it was a thing that you could do. Also, we do tend to see a bit of a difference in age when kids present for gender identity assessments and care and and medical transition and things like that, where kids who are assigned male at birth do tend to present younger, whereas kids assigned female at birth do tend to present older. So it's more in the like early years age, so six to nine-ish for for assigned male at birth, whereas it's more in the early adolescent years or puberty years for assigned female at birth. But again, we can thank sexism for that because in our paternalistic culture, we're far more worried about boys becoming girls. So as soon as there's a, a sign that this boy might not be a boy, we get them checked out. We get very concerned about that. So kids are enter these kinds of systems and have the assessments and, and 
get care that they need and want and deserve and all of that earlier. And we also have this broader expectation of what a girl can be. So a girl can be a tomboy, right? A girl has always been, or for the last, I don't know, several decades, a girl has been able to wear pants and cut her hair short and like trucks and be a diesel mechanic and whatever. And that's, that's okay, right? And so there's less concern about, there's less societal concern about this. And so maybe this kid would love to be assessed earlier or, or and I say be assessed, I just mean have the care and get, be allowed to really explore themselves and flourish and things like get that. Get the resources they need. Thank you. Get the resources they need earlier, but they're able to exist in our society just sort of as is for longer before it becomes more of a need or more of a parental concern with that. So, no, the numbers aren't really going up. There isn't an exponential rise. There's probably a general rise overall in people who feel comfortable identifying as trans because society is changing. And as hard as I can only imagine it is, it is I hope it is getting better or safer in many ways. And it, it's talked about more openly and people can see examples of people like themselves out in the world, and then they can feel more able to say things. But we are not seeing a difference in one group versus another group. It's just sort of rising all along. As for the whole idea of, oh, I'll fit in better, oh, all my friends are trans, therefore I need to be trans in order to stay with my friends. Well, like, no. Like, if we know anything about humans forming connections with each other is they seek out other people like them. So far more likely is they already found people who were kind of like them and made friends with them. And then maybe they all got strong enough together to, or, or felt comfortable enough together to come out as who they are to the rest of the world. But just like people who like D&D &D go and find other people who like D&D &D and people <laughs> who like cars find other people who like cars, right? Like, there's, or an artsy kids, artsy kids know where the other artsy kids are, right? Like, it's the kind of thing, like, you find people who you feel you can be yourself with. And I have repeatedly remarked on the sheer number of, like, traits that I ended up sharing with some of the first people that I really connected with on the internet, like, friends that I made in book fandoms 15 years ago and we ended up having six of the same diagnoses or whatever <laughs> and just all these things that sort of converge and like we didn't lead very similar lives but in the end we found people who were similar to each other even though we met at 15 right yeah it's not a matter of some viral snapchat thing i don't know do the kids use snapchat anymore i whatever Something going around whatever social media thing and a, a pressure, people are going to find people like themselves. This is mm -hmm. the far simplest explanation to this situation here. And to further this, that same study from 2022 that by the Academy, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, they, they tried to look at this. They tried to say, okay, well, if kids are identifying as trans as a way of fitting in or avoiding bullying or having better social standing, how are they doing with that? And so they took a proxy measure because that's the best that you can do. But they looked at the rates of 
bullying, mental illness, and suicidality in trans kids. And they compared it to cis kids who were sexual minorities in the same schools and areas, and also to cis kids who were not sexual minorities in those same schools. And the trans kids consistently had the highest rates of bullying and mental health issues and suicidality. So I'm not trying to downplay what Jem was saying earlier. It was just saying, we would expect that if kids were jumping on a quote-unquote trans bandwagon to try to fit in or to be cool or something, then they would not be bullied, that they would not be feeling badly. They would not have these mental health challenges. And we don't have any evidence to show that that's the case. Right. So... If it is a bandwagon, it's a very small and sequestered bandwagon. And people something keep that putting either... sticks in the spokes. <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. that you were talking about earlier made me think about, like, the queer kids have always hung out together, and the queer kids are continuing to hang out together. They just know that they are the queer group now instead of being the theater kids or yeah. <laughs> or just or feeling like there's something wrong with them that they totally. can't put their hand but finger even, on or whatever it is loners, when when loners form our little tiny groups i don't know something about it is just feels like we're we're all doing the same thing we're just more cognizant it's safety in numbers even if we don't know what our numbers are right yeah yeah so no there's no social contagion if anything there is more access to information and to people for people to be able to connect to the world and maybe understand themselves better and find a group out there and be able to say, oh, okay, this is me. I get this now. I, I can explore and figure it out. And, and oh, look, there's other people that are kind of like me. Isn't that cool? No one is trying to convert anybody. People are free to roam around these internet spaces and see what they want, and they'll pick up what sticks, what they like, and they'll put down what they don't like. So if they're landing on things and they're feeling comfortable enough to say, hey, yeah, this is me now, this, this is me, this is the me who I am, then great. Speaking from somebody who discovered their own gender, gender identity, in mid to late 30s, it would have looked like sudden, sudden onset. Because all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't really think I'm a woman. But that's been percolating in my brain for years. And I finally had the knowledge and the words and what I needed to make these decisions within myself. So I'm sure it's the same for children when they learn it. Once you learn what terms, it's like, hey, that speaks to me you're going to look into it more sure and kids can open each other's horizons and expand the each other's views of what their gender identity or gender expression could or should be that doesn't mean it's a contagion it just means like kids kids learn and grow yeah, it's part of growing and, yeah. it's it's exactly it and as i was researching this it's this is the, the exact same terminology that would have been used when women were like hey let's let's make this whole voting rights thing happen for us or we want or different groups were like hey we should get treated equally like 
it's the same sort of mentality. Oh my gosh, they want to change the status quo and maybe upset my power in it. This is a problem. We need to stop it. We haven't really talked about this so far in this episode, but this is another thing that's very reminiscent of like the the gay panic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's the newest iteration of that and it it piggybacks the people who promote this narrative piggyback on that very very much as well. Yeah. But and no, something that you said, Laura, you had said like I hope it's getting easier. And I think the thing that freaks me out the most is that it felt like it was getting easier and now it's getting worse. Yeah. We're going to get into that a little bit in my segment too, so. Well, isn't that a great trend? Save your pod. some turfs and farts will tell you. Trans people have been around as long as cis people. Social science concepts like gender binary and gender roles have only been around since the mid-20th century. So how we classify historical folks will always be different from how they saw themselves. And, of course, as with any group made up of those not in power, our stories have been winnowed and removed from the historical record. There is also not a credible record of intersex people through history as well, And I don't want anyone to come away from my segment feeling that I was ignoring anyone. I just don't have access to a lot of their records. Obviously, before getting into where we are sort of now, I can't go through the whole of trans history around the world. Because we're trying to get out of here at a decent hour, which we have failed at. And again, (laughs) a lot of trans and non-binary stories have been suppressed. So I'm going to do a bit of a speed round. I'm spending more time in ancient times to show that we've always been here. Across many different cultures and parts of the world, history records a third gender, or several genders, people who dress and act as different from their assigned gender, and, or as a separate group altogether. We see evidence in Neolithic and Bronze Age drawings from around the Mediterranean, and in histories from Eastern Asia and across the Americas, all of which we still have access to. Philo of Alexandria and Marcus Millenius provided descriptions of transgender people during the early Roman Empire. Philo stated, Expending every possible care on their outward adornment, they are not ashamed even to employ every device to change artificially their nature as men into women. Not flattering, but we existed. (laughs) Nero, the emperor of Rome, who never owned a fiddle, by the way, he married two men, Pythagoras and Sporus, in legal ceremonies. Sporus was accorded the regalia worn by the wives of Caesars. What we don't know, of course, is if these were political necessary matches or not. Another Roman emperor, Elagabalus, he may have been trans, and a lot of trans people do look to him as as an example. His reign has been touted as acceptance of gender nonconformity in ancient Rome. I wouldn't go that far. According to Cassius Dio, Elagabalus delighted in being called the mistress and wife and queen of Heracles, which was one of his lovers. The emperor wore makeups and wigs, preferred to be called a lady and not a lord, and he offered vast sums to any physician who could provide the emperor with a vagina. So the emperor is seen by some as an early transgender figure and one of the first on record to seek reassignment surgery. Hmm. Do not know if Elagabalus got the surgery? Probably not, because it didn't exist. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I would hope not, given the, the state of surgical care at the time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I didn't go into the like histories of 
eunuchism and things because that wasn't always a chosen pathway. I get the impression that it was rarely chosen. Yeah. So yeah, we're not going to go into that. But when we do start looking at the expansion of the Abrahamic religions into the Middle Ages, through the early modern age in Europe, we get more examples as opposed to these few shining ones that I gave from the ancient period. They're not as as nice. A lot of the instances end with either prison or death penalties for people who are either dressing or marrying or living how they feel as their own selves. So let's move on. In 1895, the Circle Hermaphrodotos became the first transgender advocacy group in the United States. Evidence for the Circle really only exists in one autobiography of a member, and its members, of course, only knew each other by pseudonym. So there's some people who doubt whether it existed. The 20th century saw the beginning of confirmation surgeries, starting in 1906 with Carl Bayer, who was born intersex and assigned female at birth, and received the first surgery and then alteration of his birth certificate to male. He also worked closely with Magnus Hirschfeld to document his life in an autobiography, especially his childhood, of knowing he was a boy but having to live as a girl. If the name Magnus Hirschfeld sounds familiar, I covered him and his Institute of Sex Research in episode 178, where we discussed medical tragedies through history, because research from Hirschfeld and other trans researchers at his institute were pointedly destroyed by the Nazis in 1933. Give a listen back to 178 for that story. Going ahead, in the early to mid-20th centuries, doctors performed more and started to get better gender-affirming surgeries, which were usually touted as modern medical miracles in the press. Medical transition was widely considered to be part of great strides of scientific exploration. At least that's how it was presented. Though still being gay and or presenting as non-conforming gender, both continued to be illegal and evidence of mental illness in the U.S., as Jem touched on. The late 20th and some of the early 21st centuries, as Ashwin had said, showed some small gains in some Western countries like gender identity and expression being added to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms between 2013 and 2016. And then the evangelicals came for us. There is a current calculated effort in the United States, Europe, elsewhere around the world, and yes, here in Canada, to roll back the rights, protections, and gains that have been hard run by trans and queer advocates throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. I'm going to give just a little bit of background, and then I hope my co-hosts will jump in and have their own rant about these laws and fill in my, my knowledge where I haven't filled something in. We are recording this at the end of 2023. And each of the last three years has been a record-topping year in the United States for anti-trans bills in federal and state legislatures. So, it was the, the most ever in 2021, and then again in 22, and then again this year. According to the anti-trans bill tracker, in 2023, there were 589 bills introduced in 49 states that set out to limit transitions or trans people and their lives. 85 of these bills passed, 235 failed, and there are still 269 bills active. Elsewhere in the world, including in the, in the Canadian Conservative Party, objections to trans people existing have been growing as well. We see it across Europe as it's turning more back to fascism and here in Ca Canada in the Canadian Conservative Party. The Manitoba Conservatives, during our last election, campaigned heavily on parental rights, which is shorthand for, my kid can't be gay or trans without my permission, and I don't give permission. 
They can't even read about it. The Conservatives were not elected. A disturbing amount of them were, though. Yeah, one of the things that that came up when I was planning my research project for the public health elective that I did was my preceptor asked, oh, so are you going to talk about this this whole, like, parents' rights things that is in the news? And I said, no! <laughs> but I did actually, like, I didn't talk about it directly, but in the, the show that I produced, and that, that show is going to be part of the curriculum moving forward, it looks like, is shared with some of the folks in charge of the population health curriculum for med students. I do specifically address like the the dangers inherent in policies that require trans kids to be outed to their parents, which should never happen. And I talk about ways mm-hmm. that that schools can work to prevent unintentional outing to parents, to peers, to other members of the school community and like that. That's excellent. Thank you. I want to go back to the bills in the United States, these 589 of them, and why they're being fronted now. As mentioned, as Jem mentioned, as Laura mentioned, a lot of these bills concern children. Banning people from socially transitioning without telling their parents, banning them from medically transitioning, or to block puberty until the age of 18, which is maddening. You're done then. Some bills go up to age 26. And other bills also try to block children's ability to play sports. Other bills seek to ban trans people, having protection when renting a home or getting a job. In some states, they have those protections, and in some states, they don't. Some of these bills seek to define any performance by a trans person or a drag performer as obscene, and to reduce or remove entirely venues for such performances. So this would include any performances not even related to gender or sexuality. So if you had a trans poet get up and read a poem, they could declare that obscene and shut the venue down. Like, so it's really just laws against existing. Yep, exactly. It's always been. And that's that's the next one. Other bills are attempts to bring back the urinary leash laws of earlier society. Anybody figure out what that means? Anybody know? Trying to put it together, but I'm afraid not. No. Nope. Okay. Before women were considered people, there weren't very many respectable businesses that would have oh, bathrooms God. available for women. So they would have to return home and not spend time in society. We also okay, see this if you can't for people be of in color. Public, you can't be in public. Yep. That's the, that's the tagline I couldn't remember. Thank you, Ashlyn. <laughs> so there are bathroom bills in the United States. Some are trying to get through in Canada and definitely in Europe. They're attempting to reestablish a similar leash law for trans people. The, again, effectively removing us from society. There are sometimes I'll go to, I talked earlier about being pleasantly surprised at the West End Cultural Center, having bathrooms that are for everyone. And this one includes urinals. This one includes just stalls. I have such an anxiety when I go to a place and I'm like, oh, I can't pee here. And I'm somebody with a bladder in their 40s. <laughs> so I, I do kind of have to do some bathroom mapping. And it does, I mean, it feels kind of icky to have to use the, the woman's washroom. I know I'm in a stall and all that, and nobody is going to question me. But it's still, it's like, I am uncomfortable. Transphobia and transmisia, which is the hatred of trans people and not the fear of trans people, are at the base of all of these bills, of course, and there's good reasons for that. The Conservatives in the United States and in Europe and in Canada, we've set up the trans community as the next big bad. It was women's rights. It was rights for people of color. It was gay rights. And now it's just, we're going to go down the line and hit the, the trans rights. 
So I kind of want to discuss this. Why? Why are they so scared of us? Is it fear of the other? Fear of themselves? Fear of the children that are coming up? Talked earlier about fear of losing power and feeling lesser. Anything else that we can think about why they're trying to, to hurt us so much? I don't know if individual people have any particular hatred that isn't just sort of frothed up by a few people who want to remain in power and sending people in general after a group that is easy to whip up fear of because the children is a functional way for them to stay in power. And I think that that is most of it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of it. If we, if the those in power keep everybody else distracted, then those in power can just stay in power. And so they just need to find, when people discover the illusion, they just try to create a new distraction. On an individual level, I think this goes back to that, the conversation of exploring oneself and who they are and what it is and how intensely scary that is for a lot of people, especially who were brought up and still live in this kind of conservative society that that we have, and the fear of deviating from the norm, either for themselves or for a loved one, is is terrifying. And so they try to bury their head in the sand and pre- pretend. If I fight against it, then I never have to actually ask these questions, and all this problem will go away. If I don't want people to bully you, I'm going to make it so you can't live in society, so people won't bully you? Sure. It's, it's ass backwards. It yeah, is. I know. It's Yeah, there's a tweet or something going around that had it summed up as, mm-hmm. I'm worried about you due to the way that I'm going to treat you if you come out. <laughs> yeah. And I saw another one that I shared with, with a friend group today that was, it's an open book test and you're failing history, repeating all the fascist mm. talking points that they had in the, the 30s. Yep. It was much more eloquent than I said, but <laughs> that was the gist. <laughs> so that was a crash course in, hey, we've always been here. We're always going to be here. Before you wrap it yeah. up, Lauren, I wanted to add that On Trans Day of Remembrance today, I noted that this is the deadliest year for trans people in Canada that I could find, including someone that I knew through church who was shot by the RCMP in British Columbia. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And it just has to to stop. And And we can't just say, oh, worse at this point. (laughs) No, I hate to end our segments on a downer, but... In reality, that's what we're facing right now. So if you have the ability to vote against one of these bills that are coming in, please do. Or against politicians that bring in these kind of bills. Organize in a small scale. Organize with your friends. Don't organize online. Online is fine. (laughs) Okay, we can have that debate another time. Online's fine for starting. OPSEC is hard. But yeah, it's a it's a challenge and it's good to recognize the fact that it's a challenge. Sometimes the the policy will be wrong and it's important to challenge the policy. And for some people, some of us will be in a position of more power. Some of us will be less directly affected by these things. 
And for some of us, it will be easier to stand up and speak out because we'll have less of a target on our backs. And so we need to step up and do the right thing wherever we can. I'm excited for when you are a cis male white doctor in Manitoba and you're able to have more of a voice than those of us who ain't any of the, well, I'm white, but none, none else of those things. Not putting all my hope on you, though, Jim. <laughs> Good. People are going to take you so seriously, Jim. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I could suspect... have beard like the guy from the Nick. That was Matt Frewer. Yeah, I've got Matt Frewer. I know Frewer's it was Matt Frewer. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> just, just remember, he met an early and untimely demise, Jim. He did indeed. <laughs> so did everyone in that show. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect that some of those nurses might have thought I was a resident when I was chewing them out. Jim, they think people know you're, like, most people think that you're a doctor doctor. Even before you were in med school, you could have walked into a room with a lab coat and they would have been like, well, doctor, what's the diagnosis? Well, being Dr. Uh, Newman is just kind of a family trait, right? (laughs) We should do something nice. We should do something nice. Who wants to go first? I can, but I've just done a lot of talking. First of all, our child, Ember, who is a cat, has been getting way too much screen time lately. (laughs) She's learned that our our phones can have videos of birds and squirrels on them. And now she basically demands them all the time. And currently, as we speak, she is hunting the Pokemon on Kyle's Switch because (laughs) she believes that all birds on screens are for Ember now. Hold on. Hold on. She has learned. That is suspicious use of the passive voice, Ashlyn. She has has... been trained? (laughs) Lauren has trained her to look at screens at all times? Excellent. Ashlyn and Lauren have trained her to look at screens. Okay, who's more to blame here, though, Lauren? She has learned very efficiently that the humans in her household do not put up much resistance to getting her what she wants. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You can call us suckers. We are suckers. <laughs> My cat is getting too much screen time. That is a new one. Does that it make you feel better about our children and their screen time? <laughs> <laughs> but the something nice that I wanted to talk about is a website that I found while I was researching this segment that I just love called adventuresintimeandgender.org. They have a few episodes of a podcast, which I haven't listened to because I didn't have time, but they have this whole website full of just like cool resources and questions and these little wormholes full of little history lessons and beautifully illustrated stuff, all from different like trans and queer authors and contributors. I wanted to share a couple of the things that I found that were really meaningful to me including this really cool exercise that sort of speaks to what we were talking about before, about like, even if you are very comfortable with your gender and your sexuality, like, here's something you can do. So it's an exercise called Labels That Say Yes. Settle yourself in a quiet space. Close your eyes for a bit if that feels comfy for you. Take a couple of deep breaths and let yourself feel calm. Relax your shoulders, soften your face. Quiet your mind as much as you can. You're invited to ask yourself some questions about language and labels, and then use your senses to help you figure out if the answer is a yes, a no, or a maybe. First of all, ask yourself a couple of questions that you know are a firm yes for you. You can do this with your inner voice or by speaking out loud. 
Like, am I breathing? Do I like my favorite food? And after asking the question, say yes. This can be out loud or not. And when you answer yes, notice what your senses do. How does your body respond? What does the yes feel like? Is it in a particular place in your body? Does it have a sensation? And repeat this, but this time ask yourself questions that you already know are a no for you. Do I like least favorite food? Am I 102 years old? After asking the questions and responding no, again, check in with your body. What does that feel like? Now, ask yourself a couple of questions that you know are big no's for you and follow them up with a yes that you know isn't true for you. And notice how that feels. What does it feel like when you answer in a way that isn't true for you? How does that show up in your body? What is the feeling of saying something that you don't agree with or is outside of what you wish for? You can use this information to try out some language and labels for yourself. Experiment and play with words, labels, and identities by asking yourself questions and noticing how your body responds. Does it feel like a yes, a no, or perhaps somewhere in between, a maybe or a might be space? Am I a trans person? Am I non-binary? I enjoy being masculine. I enjoy being feminine. I am anything you want to put there. Of course, they note that it's not a definitive way to figure out what labels work for you, and just, just a way to sort of do a vibe check. But I thought that it was pretty cool and meaningful. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Among the other resources that I really enjoyed, many of their pages include some sort of questions to ask yourself at the end. And here's a couple that I really loved. How does thinking of yourself as a good ancestor help you to make decisions about what's best for you now? Oof. (laughs) Right? Oh my god. Here's another Mm -hmm. one. What do you hope for the next generation? Could you hope for that for yourself too? That's my something nice today. Adventures in time and gender.org. Cool. Mm-hmm. Really neat. Put that right at the top of the show notes. <laughs> Please and thank you. This will do. Can go next. There's a problem with doing this show once a month. Something happens immediately upon our previous recording, and then we don't get to talk about it for another month. But I just want to remind everybody that Henry Kissinger is dead. (laughs) (laughs) And you missed a couple of years, but it was the earliest you could get, so you did your best. Yeah, the East Timor Relief Fund got my money, and that's all that mattered from that tontine. Other than that, we've had a fairly relaxed, we're in the, still in the middle of the holiday season here. I took the time off between Christmas and New Year's for the first time since I've worked at Hydro, and it's been, it's been nice. Yay! Despite Dave having to, Dave's gone out east to see his family, so oh. we're missing Dave, but hmm. it's nice that he gets to go out there and see them. And another something nice, I got to hang out with my family. I did a quick speed run trip to Thunder Bay early December, and I found out that I think all four of the human adults that live in my parents' house listen to this show. And if so, they just got a crash course on my gender. So, hi. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. 
but it was good to see them as well. And to meet their cat, Oliver, who's a stray who has turned into a cuddle bug. <laughs> That's my something's nice. And Lauren nice. will never say anything, but they would really appreciate if you would pick up on the pronoun usage. So my something nice over the last month was reading a new book. Not a new book, an old book. A book from 1937. But I uh, just finished it a couple weeks ago. It's called How Do You Live? It's a novel by Genzaburo Yoshino, who is a Japanese editor and novelist, obviously. It was only translated into English in the last decade, I think. And it was one of the inspirations for the new Studio Ghibli film that came out, The Boy and the Heron. And it is, it's a relatively quick read. It's about a 15-year-old boy named Jinichi Honda, or Honda Jinichi, or Copper who is growing up in in Japan in one of the districts in Tokyo and his relationship with his peers at school and his relationship with his uncle and it is it's just lovely it's it's a very thoughtful and kind book and it was it was just a a delight to read and I liked it very much. It had a warmth to it, and you could really feel, you could really put yourself in this, or I could really put myself in this boy's shoes, and it just has a lot of kindness and thoughtfulness to it that I really appreciated. Thought it was, I thought it was great. And the new Studio Ghibli movie, The Boy and the Heron, is, is good too. I liked that as well. But this book is my something nice. How Do You Live by Genzaburo Yoshino. It sounds really awesome. lovely. I had a something nice and then a piggyback, and I lost the piggyback one. My something nice right now is having had some time over the holidays, some time off, and having been able to spend some really good time with some really good friends of mine who we've been friends for decades, decades and decades now, and... That was just a really nice, a really nice time. It's as parents and mums in particular, and with kids going in different directions and all sorts of things going on, we often find that we just don't, we, we can't get our schedules to align with each other. And so we were able to recently, and that was really, really lovely to be able to, to do that and to have that little bit of time. And so far, my something nice is that when other members of my household got sick recently, I have not yet. So <laughs> I don't, I don't, nah, it's possible I will, but I don't think so. And I'm glad for that. That's always something to be grateful for. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Thank you. I look forward to listening to the additional episode that you will be releasing as well. Yeah. So our listeners can, can look out for that later this month in January. Yeah, this was a heck of an episode. But I'm glad we did. Yeah, it. it's uh, it's so been many one more pieces, but yeah, it's it's been a, a big topic that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time, and there's there's always a lot more to talk about. So, if our listeners have any feedback or any other things that they'd like to hear us do a deeper dive into, you're welcome to drop us a line. You can send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com or you can comment on our website l-u-e-e-podcast.com But if you're a turf, you can just stop listening now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be good too. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
you know what? Benefit of the doubt. Keep listening. Maybe you'll learn something. Change your mind. But don't leave us comments. Yeah. <laughs> listen all you want to boost our downloads. Hey, there yeah. you go, right? Yeah. And, and comments do close automatically, I think, after after a month. Really? Yeah. I maybe maybe it's a couple months. I set it up because after after about a month, all you get is spam. And I got tired of deleting comments that are like generic, great episode. Here's a link to buy shoes. Yeah, totally. Anyway, leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. That would be great. We would really appreciate it because yeah. we reviewing we... is what they use to be like, hey, maybe other people will want to do this if somebody's motivated enough to do a review. So yeah, we even don't if it's do just it... nonsense. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't do ads. We don't, and we don't make any money off of this. Oh Christ, no! Uh, we lose money off of this, but it's a, a labor of love, that's, and it's something that's how you that we know all something's enjoy a doing. hobby. Yeah. <laughs> So leave us a review. Tell us what you think. And thanks for listening, folks. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next month. Good night. Good night. Bye. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Truly, though, looking at Tolkien's conception of masculinity, I'm like, yeah, I do feel like a dwarf or a wizard. So Not so much a ranger. You're, I think you're questioning your species a little bit more then. Because aren't dwarves... How related to dwarves? Ranger is a humans? class, Jim. Come on. <laughs> but, but, but dwarves, like how related... To humans are dwarves. They're not. There um, you go. They were created separately. They were created. Right. They were not even. They were not even created by the same god. Actually, humans or men and elves were created yeah. by Eru the One, Iluvatar. Whereas the the dwarves were created by one of the Maiar. Which one was it? Now I forget. She fashioned the dwarven fathers out of stone, and they gave rise to the entire dwarven race. But there were no. Dwarven mothers mentioned at that time. It's a little bit confusing. Maybe they just, for a long time, they just had, like, budding, like yeast. Mm. Yeah. And this, in turn, has given rise to the belief that there are no dwarf women, and the dwarfs just spring out of holes in the ground. That makes sense. Yeah, also, I think it's funny that there's a whole group of people who can remember and pronounce the name Iluvatar very easily, but have a real hard time saying she instead of he. <laughs> yeah. Wow, now we have to keep this entire outtake. Damn it, Laura. <laughs> <laughs>